0: When you're lying in bed late at night, perhaps you wake up in the middle of the night, what is it that you worry about? Maybe you worry about your work, whether you're going to be able to get everything done on time. Maybe you worry about the kids, what's happening for them at school, how they're getting on with their friends, what does their future hold? Maybe you worry about some of your friends. What did she say when she meant that? Is he really disappointed with me? Perhaps you worry about your elderly parents, how long will their health hold out, or your money, whether there will be enough to pay the bills, Or, or maybe you worry more broadly about the state of the world and where things are headed. We worry about all sorts of things, don't we? We worry a lot. And when we worry, we worry because we've forgotten how big our God is. And so the good news that God has for us today in Isaiah chapter 40 and in Matthew chapter 6 is that the almighty God who holds heaven and earth in his hands is our heavenly Father who also holds us in those powerful hands. And so instead of worrying, we can prayerfully trust our worries to him and seek first his kingdom. Those are the two points we're going to look at this morning. You can summarise them in the children's song. Our God is a great big God. You know the end? And he holds us in his hands. We're going to spend more time in the first point than in the second. And we're going to work to start with out of Isaiah chapter 40. So if you've got a Bible there, open up to Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to think about the Lord Almighty. In this chapter, God addresses Israel in its exile. Uh, The Babylonians, you might remember, have come in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and have taken God's people away from the promised land into exile in Babylon. And so God's people have plenty to worry about. Not just will they get their work done on time, but will they survive this slavery? Not just how their kids are going at school, but will their children ever see their homeland again? And in that context, Isaiah gives us a staggering vision of the Lord, of God Almighty. One of the keys to this chapter is to recognise that ten times God identifies himself by that title, by that name, the Lord. You see it there for the first time in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And wherever you see the Lord like that in capital letters in our English Bibles, you know that what stands behind that is God's covenant name, uh, Yahweh, Uh, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, You remember that scene back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? And how God replied to Moses... I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This is God revealing his name to his people. He is the great I am. He is the Lord. And 10 times in this chapter, Israel's God declares his name, the Lord, to his people as they're in exile. He reminds his people that he's the one who can say, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's his very name. And by reminding his people of that name, God's reminding his people, he's reminding us that he's not like us. We're so constrained, aren't we? So so limited. Uh, I'm male and so I'll never bear children. I've got my dad's jeans and so I'll never be a hair model. Uh, I grew up in Australia and so I'm monolingual i've had a stab at trying to learn some other languages but you know they're, they're all pretty rusty i have a body which means i can't be in two places at once i'm here this weekend so i can't be somewhere else i'm human and so the length of my life is limited that there's so many ways in which i'm hemmed in and limited and constrained I can't say I am who I am. I can't say I will be who I will be because there's so many things outside of me that limit me. But God's not like that. He's not limited. He's not constrained. He's not hemmed in. And his name, the Lord, ten times in this chapter reminds us of that. His name declares that he is utterly sovereign and utterly free. He will be who he will be. And there's no one and nothing outside of him that can put any limit on him whatsoever. You've got to get your head around this. God is not just a bigger version of of us. Uh, he's therefore not like the many gods that people down through the ages and across different cultures have invented for themselves, if, if you know some of the myths of the gods in the ancient Greek and Roman world or, or the Hindu gods uh, of, of today. These are gods that are just like bigger versions of us. They're, they're like humans on steroids. <laughs> they, have, they have bigger muscles and more powers, uh, but really they're just of the same kind of category as human beings, but a, but a little bit stronger. Uh, they get married, they have fights, they bicker, uh, they go to war, they die, and they rise. Uh, there's all these stories about these gods, and they're just bigger versions of human beings. But the God of the Bible, the true God, the living God, is not like that. He's a completely different kind of being. We're creatures, but He's the Creator. We're limited, but He's infinite. We're weak. He's the Lord Almighty. And so all Isaiah does in this chapter is remind God's people of what God's name means. Uh, Pick it up in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He's talking here about the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic in the hollow of his hand. Who's marked off the heavens with a span? from one end of the heavens to the other within the, in the span of God's hand. Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? The Sahara, the Gobi Desert, the Simpson Desert. He's got them on his kitchen scales. That's the image Isaiah is giving to us here. Who's weighed the mountains in his scales? The Himalayas, the Andes, the Alps. Who's weighed the hills in a balance? Behold the nations, verse 15. The vast expanse of the continents are like a drop. From a bucket before God, they're accounted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dusts. Or all the nations are like nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And so you see, here's the point in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 40, "To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? He is the Lord. He's the God who is who he is and who will be who he will be. There's no one who compares to him. He's the Almighty. And so he's in complete control over the great sweep of history. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness we live in a country don't we that's set up for governmental change but even here if you want to change the government it's not easy Every three or four years, the political parties spend millions of dollars. They expend hours and hours of human effort. They shake countless hands. They kiss numberless babies, and yet none of them can guarantee the outcome. <laughs> they don't know what the end is. Even in a country set up for governmental change, it's hard to get the outcome of governmental change that you want. Changing a government is hard, but not to God. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is in control over the great sweep of history, over all political powers, but he, He's also in control over the vast expanse of the universe. Isaiah continues, verse 25. To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these? He who brings out their starry host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's speaking about the stars, of course, isn't he? Uh, if you go to a place like this on a clear, moonless night with the unaided eye, I'm told you can see about 3,000 stars. If you have a small telescope, you can take in maybe a 100,000 stars. The stars we can easily see with our eye or with a telescope are our corner of the Milky Way galaxy. The entire galaxy numbers, we estimate, about 100 billion stars. And the best estimates are that there's 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. Uh, The mind boggles, doesn't it? You try and do the maths and we've got 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. That's 10 to the power of the 22 uh, stars. That, that's 10 with 22 zeros following it. That's the number of stars in the universe, at our best guess. And the Lord brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. Most of them no human eye has ever seen. Uh, you, you see, God is in complete control of the great sweep of human history, of the vast expanse of the universe, <clears throat> and also over every single aspect of life in his world. Uh, Some people worry that God's like one of those big picture people that's always visionary dreaming but gets lost when it comes to the details. No, no, God's sovereignty is not like that. Uh, He is in charge of the big picture, but he also sees the details. Look at verse 6 earlier on in the passage. A voice cries, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. You see what we're being taught there? God sustains all of life in his world, even down to the details of the finest blade of grass, so that the grass withers and the flowers fade only at his will. There's many people in Australia who say they still believe in God, but the God that they believe in Uh, is distant and remote, Uh, a God who's not involved in the life of the world, a God who maybe set the world up, Uh, a God who no longer has any involvement in what happens here. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is at work in and through all the details of what happens in the life of his world, even down to the details of the finest blade of grass. And so we talk about the laws of nature, don't we? We talk about how the sun rises uh, about the water cycle, the precipitation and evaporation and condensation and all those other Asians that you learnt about in Year 7 Science. And, and we, think, we talk about them as the, the laws of nature. And that's one way of explaining what's going on. But from a biblical point of view, the way to understand the laws of nature is that these are God's habits. Uh, this is God every day sustaining the universe. And so Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5 that God makes his sun rise. Uh, he's not denying that, that the sun rises as the earth rotates on its axis. Uh, this biblical explanation and the scientific explanation aren't in competition with each other. Jesus is just showing us a deeper dimension. Uh, God sends the rain, he says. The grass withers and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them, we read in Isaiah. Uh, this is God intimately involved in the life of his world, sustaining it to its finest detail. Every minute of every day. And the point here in Isaiah is not just that non-human creation, not just the grass and the flowers that are sustained by God, but human life, you and me. At Verse 6, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You see, God sustains the grass and the flowers, and God also sustains people. You and me. The God who is in complete control, you see, is also giving every breath you take to you as a gift. Every time your heart beats, that's God sustaining your life. Every time you wake up in the morning, it's because God has kept you through the night. You see that? The God of the Bible is the Lord Almighty the one who is who he is and and will be who he will be, who's in complete control of the vast sweep of human history, of the great expanse of the universe, Uh, from the trillions of stars in the sky to the rise and fall of nations to the life of the smallest microorganism. He's also the one who gives you every breath you take. You see, there's nothing outside of his control. In fact, God's absolute sovereignty extends even to suffering and sickness and sin. Remember, Isaiah here is addressing Israel in its exile. The Babylonians had come in and destroyed the temple and taken God's people away as slaves. And this wasn't some accident of history. God had sent the Babylonians to judge his people for their sin. And so God's people in exile may have been tempted to think that God had forgotten them. Or perhaps that God had given up on them. Perhaps their sin was too grievous, their failure too great. And so in verse 27 of our passage, God reads their minds and he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Perhaps you felt like that at times as well. Perhaps you feel like sometimes God has forgotten you. Perhaps you worry that you're too far gone. And perhaps that's part of what fuels, fuels your fears, that gives strength to your worries and your anxieties. Life is out of control and, and even God has abandoned me. But that's why it's important to see what God is, that God is in complete control even over suffering and sickness and sin. Go back right to the start of the chapter and look at how it begins in chapter 40, verse 1 here. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, God had sent his people into exile for their sins, but that wasn't his final word. He's in complete control even over the sin of his people, even over the suffering that they bring upon themselves by their sin, and that means he's also the one who can deliver them from their sins, you see? He's also the one that can rescue them out of their slavery. And so Isaiah announces the good news that the Lord himself is about to return to rescue his people. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh together will see it. Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. This is the good news that God himself, the sovereign over the whole creation, the Lord over all of history is coming to save his people because the the almighty Lord who controls all things cares for his people. Look at verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The Lord Almighty is more than able to rescue his people from their sins and their enemies. He's more than able to deliver them from their suffering and all their troubles. He's more than able to meet their needs because he is the Lord Almighty. And so I wonder if we need to reflect about our own anxieties and worries. Is it the case that when we worry, it's because we think that God is not able to overcome whatever obstacle it is that we're worrying about? When we're anxious, is it because we've forgotten just how big our God is or we've forgotten how much he cares for his people? And so Isaiah tells God's people in exile to wait for him. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He won't grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. You see, if we're worrying, it's because we've forgotten either how big our God is, how almighty his power, or we've forgotten how much he cares for his people and we've failed to wait on him. And what Isaiah declares here. God reveals even more clearly in Jesus, his son. Uh, the good news that the almighty God, the God who flung the stars into space, the God who rules over history, the God who sets up and overthrows governance, the God who gives life and breath to every creature, who, who rules over sickness and suffering and even over sin, the good news that God has come in Jesus to save his people and revealed himself even more fully as our heavenly father. Who loves us and cares for us in our need. And so when we open up the pages of the New Testament, you might want to flick over now to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We find Jesus appearing and announcing the arrival of the good news that Isaiah prophesied. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and we learn that it's the voice of John the Baptist prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 now fulfilled in John and he's preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord Almighty who's coming to save his people and we find that the Lord for whom he prepares the way is Jesus. The Lord has come in Jesus and so when we get to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us what this means for our worries. In fact, he gives us a command of what to do with our worries. And then he tells us how to keep that command. So let's listen first to the command. It's there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, if you've got it there. God, the Almighty, is our Heavenly Father. And so, Jesus says, verse 25, do not worry about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. He says it again, do not worry about your body, about what you'll wear. And then again in verse 28, why do you worry about clothes? And then the conclusion in verse 31 so don't worry. And then in verse 34 therefore don't worry about tomorrow. You get the picture? (laughs) The message here is very simple. The God who is in complete control is your Heavenly Father who loves you, so don't worry. We need to be clear about what this does and doesn't mean because in a room like this, we've got all sorts of different personalities and different proclivities. Uh, perhaps at one end of the spectrum, some of us tend to be laid back, maybe even lazy. And so we might hear Jesus' command, do not worry, as a justification for our <laughs> laziness. Ah, oh, well, I can sit back and do nothing. <laughs> uh, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't care, he's not saying don't plan. He's not saying don't act. All through the Bible we're taught that it's wise to be planned and prepared. Think of Joseph storing up grain when the famine was coming. Think of Proverbs 6 where we're told to go to the ant to consider its ways and be wise, uh, to prepare, uh, to be organised. So Jesus' command to not worry is not an excuse to be irresponsible. The Bible everywhere commends us to be good stewards of the things that God has trusted us with. At the other end of the spectrum, maybe there's some of us here who tend to overthink things, to worry excessively. Some of us struggle with anxiety. And Jesus is not here saying that it's wrong to seek help from others, including medical help, especially if we struggle with anxiety as some of us do. But what he is saying to all of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum, is this. Trust your heavenly father who is the lord almighty because he cares for you and so do not worry and so if we find ourselves worrying maybe we need to ask ourselves is it because i've shrunk god is it because i'm failing to remember how vast his power Is it because I'm trying to control things myself rather than trusting in him and I know I can't control the outcome and so I'm getting anxious? And what have I done? I've put myself in place of God. Because often that's what's going on when we worry, isn't it? We shrink God or we forget God, we put ourselves in God's place and then we worry because we know we can't keep it all under control and we can't produce the outcome that we want. And so Jesus commands us, trust your heavenly Father, the Lord Almighty, and don't worry. How do we learn to do that? Well, right here Jesus shows us how. He teaches us to remember who we are and to remember who our God is and so cast our cares on him. Remember who you are. That's the place to start. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his span of life? Remember how impotent you are, how little power you actually have because that will keep you from thinking that you can control everything and it will cast you back on your heavenly father. Recognise that you are not in control and so run to him who is. And that's what Jesus says there in verse 26. Remember who your God is. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And why do you worry about clothing? Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Your heavenly Father, the Lord Almighty, sees and knows what you need. He is more than able to provide. And so Jesus says, stop trusting in yourself and trust in him do not worry a little later in matthew chapter 10 jesus teaches this same truth matthew 10 29 aren't two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent but even the hairs of your head have all been counted you see here this this wonderful detailed sovereignty of god not one sparrow falls to the ground without his express consent. God's not some CEO off in an office somewhere, uh, uninvolved in the life of his world. No, he sees and gives consent to the death of every sparrow. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Or verse 30, even the hairs of your head have all been counted. They say, Google tells me the average head has about 100,000 hairs. I think it's obvious that uh, some have more than others. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, Google tells me that redheads apparently on average have 90,000 hairs while blondes have 140,000 hairs. Who knew? But do the maths on that. How many people in the world? Seven billion, eight billion, each with roughly 100,000 hairs on their heads. That's an incredible database that God is keeping. Even the hairs on your heads are numbered. Numbered. But, of course, Jesus' point is that this is not some database that God has filed away. This is his personal knowledge of each and every one of us. Even the hairs on your head have been numbered by God. You see, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Have you ever tried to count your own hairs? (laughs) You'd give up in in a minute or two, wouldn't you? This is our Heavenly Father's detailed and personal sovereignty. And so remember who you are, remember who your God is and so cast all your cares on him. That's what Jesus says in between these two statements in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 10. If we go to Matthew 7, he encourages us to ask and it will be given to you, to seek and you will find, to knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You see, the Lord Almighty is our Heavenly Father. He knows what we need. He cares for us. And so we need to ask him to meet our needs like a little child asking his dad for something to eat. This is Jesus' simple but profound antidote to anxiety. What should you do with your worries when you wake up in the middle of the night? Here's what Jesus says. Turn them into prayers. You think about it like this. this, if there's a meter that has worry down this end of the spectrum and the needle goes, when you're really worrying, it goes down that end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum on the meter is, is prayer. And, 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 and as you pray, you take your worries and you trust them to God and you leave them in his capable, powerful, almighty hands. And when you do that, then you'll be able to rest and relax And so give yourself to seeking first his kingdom. That's where Jesus leaves us at the end in verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You see the point when you trust that the almighty God is also your heavenly father who loves you, you'll stop worrying about yourself and you'll be free to seek his kingdom. You'll be free to seek what he is doing in every situation to seek after his righteousness. There was, of course, one man, I'm sure you know his story, who had every reason in the world to be anxious and to fear. He had, quite literally, the weight of the world on his shoulders. But when he faced his darkest hour, he didn't give way to fear. Instead, what did he do? He prayed. He cast all his worries on his heavenly father. He prayed, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. There's Jesus putting his money where where his mouth is, right? Do not worry, but cast all your cares on him, and so seek first his kingdom. Not my will but yours be done, he prayed. You see, he knew that life is more important than food. And the body is more important than clothes. So when they stripped him naked and gave him wine vinegar to drink, when they mocked him and spat on him and ultimately crucified him, even then he was able to trust his heavenly Father, to seek his Father's kingdom, to not worry, to not give way to fear, but to entrust himself to the Lord Almighty. You see, Jesus is our model in all of this he shows us the way but of course he's also more than our model he's also our hope he's also the one who shows us that when we put our trust in God and seek first his kingdom God will care for his people because you know how the story ends don't you how his heavenly father raised him from the dead and brought him back to life even through death he could trust God and so God proved that even all the sins of all the world, which Jesus took to the cross, not even they were more powerful than the Lord Almighty. That even the deepest suffering of the darkest day, not even that was outside the Lord Almighty's control. So what are you worried about? We believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Amen? So let's learn to take our worries to him. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth that you who made heaven and earth, that you who hold the universe in your hands have also become our Father through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we take control of, for ourselves, and so worry. We pray that instead you'd help us to take our worries to you, to entrust them into your powerful hands, and so to seek first your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.